When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye Talk is about to begin. Hey, hey, hey. Come on in. Welcome to Buckeye Talk. It is the triumphant return of Monday Madness. We are one week into the season. I'm Nathan Baird from Cleveland.com, along with Doug Lamerese. This is our usual Monday morning Buckeye Talk podcast feature. We do sort of a recap of what we just saw with Ohio State. This is usually our first time to talk to you since the crazy, frenzied post-game podcast that we always do. So this gives us a chance to sort of rewatch things and then also assess everything else that happened in college football on Saturday. And as it turns out this weekend, a little bit on Sunday as well, Doug, do you feel like, uh, has the madness arrived is madness? We, we called it Monday madness last year. Cause we thought it was going to be this, uh, this bizarro thing where we're trying to play football during a pandemic. And I guess we kind of still are. I don't know that it ever really achieved, um, madness level last year, but, um, has the madness finally laid in for this year? It sounds like maybe the madness laid in for you as you're trying to get on your plane Friday morning out of oh. Minneapolis. <laughs> oh yeah. I'll tell that story. <laughs> I have, I have bad luck when my plan involves like, oh, I'll just sleep an hour and it'll be fine. It's never fine. This is the second time that this kind of thing it's, has happened to me. That's it's always, it's that's fool's gold. You think you've got that hour, but you don't. My, because the best laid plans, man, my 48 year old body was like, no, an hour is not not enough. You're going to sleep for two, even if you wake up 40 minutes before your plane as wheels up. Um, But we'll get to that later. Here's where I think the madness applies, Nathan, right now. To the idea that last year was weird enough that it was hard for us to get a read on certain teams. And so I think there are multiple teams this season where our perception is off going in or where we even threw up our hands and say, said, we don't know what the perception is. So, and we got a pretty good look across the board. And I do listen this. We want to talk college football here. I'm not trying. It's like we have a national college football show, which we didn't have last year. So I do think there are going to be some things where, you know, Shahan and I are going to dig in deep on Ohio State in the playoff picture every week. We'll touch on it here. But I do think we're going to hit on some more Big Ten stuff here. The fact that we had two other Big Ten games between relative heavyweights in the Big Ten, I thought was very informative. And the fact that Michigan – now, listen, it was Western Michigan. Michigan looked like it had some stuff working for it, right? So I think 
it was some madness and, and like I, I feel like I have a at least moderately better handle on the Big Ten race than I did before the season started. And so from that standpoint, yeah, the madness was real and we're sorting through it. I think that's a great point about getting some perspective on the Big Ten. I think we also got some good national perspective with that Clemson-Georgia game rather than those teams coming out and playing some kind of you know, FCS school or some other lower-level school starting off against each other, I think told us um, some things about both of them. Definitely showed me how, how wrong I was about where I thought about uh, Clemson for sure. And um, at least that's the way it seems right now. For people who are new to Monday Madness, maybe you've jumped on the Buckeye Talk bandwagon since the end of last season. We have sort of a format that we roll through. We, we talk about some Ohio State-specific stuff. We also um, hit on the, the ballot that I fill out each week. We hit on some things that are going on nationally. So there's going to be a sort of a – we have little themes that we're going to pop into. Before we do that, though, we did want to start off kind of looking back at the Ohio State game, the 45-31 victory at Minnesota that I think was enlightening for us in some ways about Ohio State, but in some ways not because uh, um, for injury reasons or whatever, there were some guys who still aren't playing. And I think that'll, that picture is still kind of coming together, especially on the defensive side of the ball. But, Doug, as you rewatch that game, as we both have done now, what – Anything that jumped out at you? Anything that you missed the first time through that you felt enlightened more by watching it through again? Anything that was sort of reemphasized that when you watch it back through again? So I think there was a, something on each side of the ball that was enlightening for me on the rewatch. And I did rewatch every play, took notes as I did. Offensively, in the end, C.J. Stroud has to be better. And I think we knew that. I really liked how he reassessed things after the game, and I gave him a lot of points for that. And this is going to be the hard thing, Nathan. It's going to be – because, listen, he doesn't operate on an island. And there are going to be times where you're going to feel like – how do I – you're going to feel – like I'm going to ding him right now because Garrett Wilson was open by seven yards on his touchdown catch. And Chris Olave's last touchdown catch, he was literally – there was not a Minnesota defender within 10 yards of Chris Olave. And so he has supremely talented receivers who are elite route runners and an elite play caller. And all he has to do is make a throw to a wide open guy who's wide open by seven to 10 yards. And he did. And it resulted in two giant touchdowns that changed and saved the game. So I'm not going to actually ding him for that, but the staff that I wanted to bring up, double checking this on PFF. And I went through the PFF some of the PFF stuff. I don't know if you, I didn't go through everything, but I really wanted to check this. I haven't looked at those yet. I wanted to, to rewatch before I, I didn't want that to color my thinking. I wanted to kind of be the other way around. This was the stat that we talked about in what kind of offense was Ohio state going to be stylistically this year. More like Justin Fields, more like Dwayne Haskins, Justin Fields, his two years at Ohio state in 2019, this is according to PFF stats. The number of his percent of his passes that he threw that were caught by a player behind the line of scrimmage. In 2019, it was 9.7% of Justin Fields' passes were caught by a player behind the line of scrimmage. Last year, it was 11.6%. So it's very low. And we've said Trevor Lawrence and some of those other guys, a quarter of their passes are behind the line of scrimmage. C.J. Stroud was 6 of 6 for 105 yards on passes behind the line of scrimmage. That was 28.5% of his passes. We know there was the screen 
to Travion Henderson that saved the game, that put the game away. They, they ran a bunch of bubbles to Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave where they're getting the ball out. They're like extended running plays. And then, so in his depth of passes, he was six of six behind the line of scrimmage. They're missing like one incompletion here because I think maybe it was a clear up play where he threw out of bounds. They don't count it. Six of six behind the line of scrimmage, four of six, zero to nine yards, one of four, 10 to 19 yards, two of five, 20 plus. And they were the two touchdowns, the, the big one to Garrett Wilson, the big one to Chris Olave. I'm not sure he made a tough throw. Like he had all the little short, easy ones. And then the deep ones he hit to his credit. And then there was that other one to Olave that was like down the sideline where he feathered it over the linebacker. But there were multiple times where Minnesota wound up trying to cover three Ohio state receivers with only three defensive backs. And like the other eight guys were in the box either because they were blitzing or they just were expecting the run. And you can't do that. Minnesota doesn't have three guys that can cover the three Ohio state guys in a route. And I don't know why they tried to do it again. The, the Sven Johansson or whoever the, the Minnesota safety was who was trying to cover Garrett Wilson on that post when he ran a little bit of an out fake spun the guy in a circle. That was their defensive plan. That guy was like 15 yards off the line of scrimmage. Garrett Wilson ran straight at him, went one step to the outside. The guy spun in a circle, and Garrett Wilson was seven yards open on a post, and there was no help. There was nobody there. And they're like, oh, Sven Johansson, he's got him. It's like, what are you doing? How do you think that's going to work? They did that time and again. Now, they get forced into it because the run game is effective enough. The bubbles bring the defense up, right? There's Ohio State scary enough. But this is the only context I'm talking about. CJ didn't have to do anything tough. I still think in the end he missed probably five throws. I think he was 13 of 22. I thought there were probably like five actual misses in some of those. He's going to have to hit a lot tougher throws along the way for them to win a national championship. That's all. And it reinforced, because I thought sort of my read after the game was, man, he missed some stuff in the first half, but he settled himself down and credit to him for doing what he had to do in the second half. And I'm not taking that credit away, but in rewatching it, it reinforced it to me, Nathan, of like, man, well, I mean, you know, the first round receivers were open by 10 yards. So, yeah. And then for instance, there's the national perspective. You watch Georgia Clemson and you realize those defenses are not going to let Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave run seven to 10 yards open. It doesn't matter how good Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson are. That's not how it's going to be when Ohio State gets to the highest level. And even Indiana, Iowa, which I think we'll talk about a little bit when we talk about who's the second best team in the Big Ten. You can see Iowa didn't let Indiana's guys run free. Now, Ty Freifogel's not Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave, so that's not only part of it, but the Minnesota secondary and game plan to stop Ohio State's passing offense was quite, quite sad. And so I think we have to keep that in mind. Nobody wants to rag on C.J. Stroud after his first start, and I'm not. I was. I thought he really handled himself emotionally and from a poise standpoint. But it reminded me, man, he did not. I don't think he had. A, I don't think he hit a window. Like I, I legitimately think he completed 13 passes, and I don't think there was seriously a single throw in there that required any real placement you know and so I just wanted to reemphasize that because we can't go forward thinking like well that's it he had a rough rough first half he's figured it out because the the defenses are going to get better and he's going to get better but the reminder is 
he's gonna he has to get better because that was some bad defense by Minnesota. Yeah, and I think the stat that you point out really helps exemplify that. I mean, one of four on passes, ten to nineteen yards, two of five on twenty plus, and the and the two being the ones that were were the touchdowns for Wilson and Olave had separated. So that's three of nine beyond 10 yards there. And if you remember, we did a whole podcast about this. Um, we talked about it many times about the thing that set Justin Fields apart that made him special as a passer was his efficiency and his, um, his precision and his accuracy to depth of target that the, yep. the deeper passes downfield, he was just as accurate. In fact, he was as accurate as anybody in the country. And you certainly can't say that about C.J. Stroud right now. Should you be able to say that about C.J. Stroud right now? Probably not. Guy hasn't played football in two years. Guy didn't throw a pass all of last year in a real way in a game. So, again, those caveats are there. That's not making excuses for him. That's just describing where guys are at, at different stages of their career. But you also can't say that the Ohio State offense isn't missing something when it doesn't have that. It had that Absolutely. the last two years. It had that the last two years. And if it, if it doesn't have that with C.J. Stroud, it has to compensate that for, in another way. Does it do that through um, – does, does Ryan Day do that through other formations? Do you do that somehow with the running game? And does it sort of come together over time? Maybe. But it's certainly something just to keep an eye on because I think at some point you're right. That does have to um, – does have to develop. And, and it, more than him not hitting some of those throws, I mean – the, the interception that he threw is a perfect example of that was going to be another one where there was some depth of target to it. And I don't know. One thing that I did see more rewatching the game was that the conditions might've been affecting him a little bit. There might've been some wet hands, some wet ball. I don't know. That may have been why some of those passes sailed, but that one certainly did. And so now not only are you missing a throw into a crowd, you're, you're throwing it wild and a guy just barely gets a hand on it, tips it up. And now it's the other team's ball. Like those sorts of things are going to have to be cleaned up a lot. Because the other thing that I think as I was watching this game was, yes, Minnesota is really bad on defense. And I think regardless, and we're going to talk about where Oregon is health-wise because they've got some big guys who may not be able to play on Saturday against Ohio State. But I think even without those guys, this might be a better defense that Ohio State sees on Saturday than it did a week ago or just a couple days ago. Pure talent. I mean, there's there's no there's no doubt about it. Oregon has some Oregon has some five stars on defense. I'm not sure Minnesota has any four stars. And we talked about they did you know a couple transfers a defensive tackle a linebacker, but it, but in their past defense, it's just it's still not there. And, and there were a couple there were at least two other times I thought where C.J. Stroud had moments. One I think was the drive right after the pick on a third down. If you watch the third down routes develop. I think Olave and Jackson Smith and the Jigba like run their routes right to the sticks. It's like a third and 10. They run their routes right to the sticks and turn around. And, you know, it, they're not wide open, but there's a window there to throw. And Jeremy Ruckert's in the flat, and he's like six yards short of the sticks, but there's nobody near him. And C.J. Stroud looks at the two receivers where he has a chance to rip a throw. He sees the dump off to the tight end who's right in front of him, and he doesn't throw any of them. And he just floats the opposite way, scramble, 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 and ends up just running out of bounds for a gain of zero. And it, there were also some throws there. And that's the kind of throw that he didn't make, right? It's in the middle of the field, zero to 20 yards kind of thing, or nine to 20 yards, that middle throw where you've got to squeeze it in between some guys. And he didn't even want to try it. He didn't even want to try it. Now, you're better off holding it than throwing a pick. But at some point, you know, it's like, well, it's not really going to be a pick. Rip the throw in there. and. He didn't. And so that'll get better. Listen, Spencer Rattler, 
like floating in the pocket, making weird decisions, letting Tulane stay in the game. Spencer Rattler, who people think is going to win the Heisman, not great. DJ Uyunglele looked young against Georgia, man. Now, Georgia looks like they have 13 guys on the field on defense half the time. They're so fast. So that's a different challenge. DJ looked young against maybe the best defense in the country. CJ at times looked young against a bunch of Sven Jorgensen's. So that's different. But we have, and we're not saying any, but we're just saying in the context of, are you going to be great? Uh, you know, there's, there's a journey ahead for the Ohio State offense in, in terms of that. On the defensive side of the ball, I, I don't know what you were going to point out, but I felt a couple of times like I was doing a rewatchable in the future of a defense that will be good someday, but isn't yet. I think that's fair. It's tougher to get a read on this because right. Seven Banks and Cam Brown didn't play. And if I thought Ohio State was going to go through this season with those corners, I'd be worried. Now, they're young, and they'll get better. And I thought on the last drive, Denzel Berkman, a couple plays in the last drive, I thought Ryan Watts made at least three really good plays. He made a really good play to come up and make a tackle on a third down that was like really important. It was like a really aggressive tackle. I thought he had some really nice man on man coverage on a ball lofted to the goal line at one point that was like, he did not let the guy get free. And then he had the play where he got blitzed on the deep ball and had to tackle the guy. Right. And there were other times. And then Denzel Burke had a couple times, but I just, I didn't like the coverage. I didn't like, there was nothing. And, and, and I don't listen, Nathan, I, I don't think we try to, trick people into thinking we're X and O experts. But I didn't see – I counted two blitzes from Ohio State the whole game. There was the blitz that Cody Simon and Taraj Mitchell came on the last play of the first half, and Cody Simon got home. And there was another one in the first half where Legend Cavazos blitzed from the edge at corner, and Craig Young, it was a play where they had the bullet sometimes, probably the bullet maybe five to seven times in the course of the game, dropped back as a second deep safety. Sometimes it was Ronnie Hickman and sometimes it was Craig Young. They blitzed Legend Cavazos and they had Craig Young slide down from like the, as a deep safety spot to cover it, right? It was a little bit of a change, but it was a running play, so it didn't matter. Those are the only two times I saw a real blitz, and I didn't see anything that I thought would, would confuse Tanner Morgan or would, would change sort of his eyes, right? That, well, who's where? I thought you knew, again, exactly where every Ohio State guy was in coverage almost every time. There was maybe another ball in the middle of the field where they dropped back in a zone and it was a slant to Dalen Wright and Josh Proctor was going to blow him up and Dalen Wright was like, ah, I'm not going to try to catch that. And Denzel Burke almost intercepted it because he just pulled his hands down. He made a business decision. No offense, I would have done the same thing if Josh Proctor was flying at me. But when I looked at some of the other games, Nathan, the devastating, like the, game, the pick that Iowa had on Indiana at the end of the first half to really finish that game off in the first half, the corner was playing off coverage, read Michael Penix the whole way, took one step back, and then drove on the ball and made a pick six play. The, the, the pick six that Georgia had against Clemson, that Georgia player after the game was talking about, he baited DJ Uyunglele into that throw. He knew it was coming. He didn't break on it right away. He waited enough to give himself a chance not to just knock it down, but to pick it. He didn't want to 
cover it so well that DJ didn't throw it. He wanted DJ to throw it. It was the only touchdown in the game. Clemson had a pick in that game on JT Daniels where they passed off coverage and JT wasn't expecting that. I just didn't, I don't think I saw Ohio State do that at all. And it's like, okay, well, when are you going to do something that gives your guys a chance to make a play? Now, he's starting guys who've never started a corner before. So maybe with Cam Brown and Seven Banks, you do that more often. But you, it's hard for them to get in positions to make plays because some other defenses are changing their looks, changing the quarterback's eyes. And I didn't think Ohio State did that. Nathan, I thought at the end of the game, the last drive that Minnesota scored on, they hit three throws in the middle of the field. They finally started throwing some slants that I thought were wide open all game. And I could not believe they didn't try more of them. And I think it was lucky for Ohio State that Minnesota didn't get to that sooner because I don't know that Ohio State could have stopped it. And I thought Tanner Morgan was not as good as I thought he would be. Not that we expected a ton. He still missed some throws. He made some wanky decisions. And it made me think he's just average. And I didn't watch the Oregon game because it's on the Pac-12 network. And apparently Pac-12 network is only available in like a little sliver of Idaho. Did anybody watch that game? I don't know, but hence the alliance. So I don't know how Anthony Brown played. But if Anthony Brown is 25% better than Tanner Morgan, then Ohio State's corners need to play better because they were kind of lucky that Tanner Morgan didn't hit some more stuff, I thought. Again, on the rewatch, I thought there, there were times when the corners were okay, but there were times when it was like, man, they are hanging on by a thread, and Minnesota couldn't do – Minnesota missing its number one receiver. And with a guy who in the end is a veteran but is still only okay, couldn't take advantage of it as much as I th- – I'm talking a lot. I thought if they had gotten a David Blau performance, I think they could, I think Minnesota could have won. Well, but again, the the crucial part of the David Blau performance is who he's throwing to. That <laughs> was Rondell Moore, and not to take anything away, but I mean it. That was what was special about that performance for Purdue, and Minnesota just didn't have that guy. I mean, Ibrahim is. I I was really impressed by him actually. Um, yeah, I think I came away more impressed by him than I did going into the game. Although I actually think. Purdue, or I mean, sorry, Ohio State kind of bottled him up pretty well for the most part. You take away the the big fourth down run, um, which we talked about in the post game about how that there was just a whiff there by Legend Cavazos that opened that up. You take that away, and it's I don't know a, a pretty ordinary running performance by Ibrahim in that as far as stats. Um, but I, I found myself you bring up Chris Autumn Bell, and it made me wonder. You know, Ryan Day said after the game that Seven Banks was available in an emergency capacity if they needed him. I mm. wonder if Chris Autumn Bell had been healthy if Seven Banks would have had to play in this game. That's a good point. That, that could have been the decision for sure. I think he might have had to because the, the uh, announcers were kind of trying to talk up um, Dale and Wright and say, boy, this guy came in. You know, They were wondering who was going to be the answer with Chris Autumn Bell. And look at this guy. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, he's playing pretty well. But then after a while, you got to be like, well, that's it. Like that's, that's the only guy that they're – even trying to get the ball to in some ways when they even try to throw the ball, which I was too, too few for my taste. I thought Minnesota could have been a little bit more diverse um, in the way they did approach this game offensively. Um, just too many. I, 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 I thought this game was when I rewatched it, this game was more there for Minnesota than I even realized the first time around. No, I, I think that's a good way to say it. 14 to 25, 205 for Tanner Morgan. There was more there. If they would have tried it more and if he, he would have hit a few more things that, that were there and just, you know, just, you know, some of the, some of the stuff I thought Ohio State 
again, we talked about it post game. That drive when Minnesota got the ball back, and this it was a chance to do something, and they're moving the ball, and the offensive lineman pushes a guy for no reason, and that Minnesota gets a 15 yard penalty, and then they get it back on the next snap, and they get a holding penalty on a hold that didn't even matter. Yeah. They held Haskell Garrett, who wasn't going to make the play, and it's like they Minnesota. Listen, the deal with Ohio State when you're a team like Minnesota, you almost have to play perfect, but it felt like they were in range of perfect if they had been a little more perfect, which is like, well, of course, Ohio State is obviously more talented. But um, I, I did think I'm, – I'm trying to look because, Nathan, I think the point you made before I went off on nine tangents about a defense that could be good someday, I wrote down sort of everybody that was on the field on, okay, one of the plays – on the fourth and one Ibrahim yeah. run, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. So I wanted to bring that up because Ohio State calls a timeout. So they had their second string defense in there basically at that point. Like, right? Like you went through it. I guess it sounds like you went through an enumerated. I didn't do that, but I, I saw several guys on the field that aren't usually on the field, had not been on the field to that point. But then Ohio State sees how Minnesota lines up on fourth and one, calls a timeout. And at that point, I'm thinking, maybe now is when you go ahead and put the first string defense back in the game on this fourth and one play where you can stop them and now maybe take control of this game. And instead they left who they had, but go ahead. So the defensive line was Zach Harrison, Haskell Garrett, Teron Vincent, and JT Tumaloa. So they have who, who, by the way, just was their fourth end, right? He's their fourth end, right? It was like, Oh, well, you know, sometimes we take out our top two ends and we put in our backups and it's Javante Jean-Baptiste and JT Tumaloa was the fourth end. And then Jack Sawyer was clearly fifth. Yep. So those are the four guys. And JJB was in as like a fifth defensive end, but he was like a stand-up linebacker because it was short yardage. Taraja Mitchell, Cody Simon, Craig Young, also in the box. Uh, Ryan Watts out wide. Legend Cavazos at the other corner and Bryson Shaw at safety. So Ibrahim, they block sort of all the defensive linemen in. Javante Jean-Baptiste kind of just pushes himself into the line, but kind of gets tangled up. And, and Mohamed Ibrahim splits. Jean-Baptiste and Craig Young makes Legend Cavazos miss and runs away from Bryson Shaw. And it's like, does that sound like an actual championship defense? Right. You know, like that's that the sound, thing you're yeah. talking about. That's the decision that is potentially costing you that game if you're Ohio State. Right. Lining those, putting those guys on the field in that situation where you have a chance, that's, that's like a boot-on-the-throat situation potentially for Ohio State. If you stuff them there where they were on the field, on, on, your, on their own half of the 50, that you're, that's a real take control moment. And I, when I rewatched the game, it didn't really dawn on me at the time. I knew that it was, I mean, yes, I knew that Cavazos wasn't a starter. I knew that Shaw was not a starter. I knew that there were non-starters out there, but in the real time of that game flowing, it didn't dawn on me that like, wait a second, they called a timeout to decide how they were going to defend that play and decided to stick with that personnel package. Yeah. And I think Steven talked a lot about on it after the, the game about like Josh Proctor uh, a lot of times was a difference maker out there. He came up and made some aggressive tackles. And if he's on the field there, there instead of Bryson Shaw, maybe it's a, you know, a 19-yard gain instead of a 50-yard gain or whatever. That I thought, I thought Proctor did erase some stuff. But, you know, they just lost leverage a couple times. They, they just wound up for, for having two guys who had never started before at corner. They put them in a lot of man situations without a lot of help. And that's what Ohio State's going to do. They're going to try to stop the run first. But I uh, – it would make me nervous if I were Ohio State to face a higher level passing game with that group, except the good thing for them is it, 
it shouldn't be that group because it should be seven banks and Cam Brown and, and that should be a little bit better. They just got hit. I mean, they Minnesota flashed, but I didn't think they did it consistently. And I think if Ohio state would have faced a team that could have done it consistently, I think Ohio state had a chance to be in some more trouble defensively than they were. Yeah. I, I get the impression just from the way that Ryan day talked after the game, the fact that we saw seven banks on the field in uniform with a helmet sort of semi-stretching. I would ex- At this point, I would expect him to play against Oregon. We'll see what happens this week. I don't know what the situation is with Cam Brown because obviously he didn't even make the trip. So that usually tells you that somebody could be farther away from having been able to play, obviously. Um, but I, I thought both Burke and Watts especially had their moments, and then they also had their moments. Like they had their moments where they looked like, oh, it's, it might be there. Like, that's a, that's a flash. Like, think of what that could be in November. And then you had other moments where you're like, oh, yeah, this is that guy's first game. Completely agree. So I'm, I'm, it's one of those intriguing things. I think this is an intriguing team. It's going to be an intriguing defense, I think, for a few weeks as we see what comes together because they don't know. Even with Seven Banks and, and Cam Brown healthy, I don't think they know who their best 11 players are right now on defense. I agree with that. I don't, th- I don't think anybody knows. And – I'm not exact. I guess they're just going to have to keep trying this stuff to figure it out. It, it was weird. There were guys who I do, you know, Demario McCall got snaps that mattered. Steel Chambers was in the game late. I thought the single best play made by a linebacker in the game was made by Steel Chambers. <laughs> he like knifed through and made a tackle in the backfield in a way that I didn't feel like most linebackers were doing. Now, you know, as Joel and Gus were talking on the, on the game broadcast, it's like, well, you know, does he know what gap to be in the rest of the time? It's like that time. I think he got in the right gap and made a play. What about the other times when it, like they popped something? Cause he was in the wrong gap. Cause he's barely played linebacker. Right. But they were like playing steel chambers. Like when Minnesota was trying to march to like, to get back in the game. And it's like, you're playing a guy who's barely played the position. But like, that's kind of, that's kind of the point that they were at. I thought Taraja Mitchell thumped some guys early. I thought Teron Vincent played well. Um, from what I saw, uh, I thought Haskell Garrett played well. I still yeah. find it a little weird that he didn't start, and it seemed like he was the second guy up at three tech, like consistently yeah. behind Teron Vincent. Yeah, and I don't know if that was just a, a matchup dependent thing, but that that seems odd to me because uh, Haskell Garrett was good enough for them against every defense, every offensive line they played last year. So, um, it, when he was healthy. So I, I don't know. That's I'm, I was also a little bit baffled by that. And I'm sure Ryan day is going to get a question about that at about 12 3 PM on Tuesday afternoon. I thought Ty Hamilton early on at nose made a couple plays. He had penetration on a run on a run. And then he, as everybody saw, he sniffed out a tight end screen that had, was going to break if he didn't knock it down. And he did that because he sensed it in the moment and got his hands up. And that was a really good play. And then, our questions about playing Vincent and Garrett together at the end when Minnesota was driving in the fourth quarter and trying to do something, Ohio State's defensive line was Zach Harrison and Tyreek Smith at end and Teron Vincent and Haskell Garrett together at tackle. So they did show that look kind of for money time, but most of the time it was either Vincent or Garrett and then either Antoine Jackson or Ty Hamilton or somebody like that at nose. This was definitely – a, an example of them believing in their depth. Now I think it's just a matter of that depth playing better 
or and then maybe backing off of that depth as as more things are proven here at different positions across the board. Let's take a break there. We're going to come back and we will talk about the story of the week for Ohio State going into the Oregon game and the betting line and how much Ohio State fans should be worried about this game. You're listening to Buckeye Talk. Back on Buckeye Talk. So our first segment that we usually run through is called Story of the Week, and it's just what's the theme of this next week's game, the theme of the six days leading into Saturday's home opener at Ohio Stadium against Oregon. Probably going to be a top 10 matchup. Oregon was number 11 the first week. They won. Some other teams lost. I would think they could probably sleep, sneak, sneak into the top 10 this week. And I think it's going to be just a, a fun day to be back at Ohio Stadium. I, I, I was kind of already getting that vibe when we were around um, Huntington Bank Stadium in Minneapolis. But starting to think ahead to myself, like, oh, this is like – because I don't really know their traditions and what's going on around that stadium. And it's not quite the same vibe there as it is around Ohio stadium, especially for a day game and all that stuff. And I'm, I'm just looking forward to um, kind of just getting back to the, the old, the good old sights and sounds around Ohio stadium Saturday morning. So Nathan, this might sound weird, but in, in terms of getting back to normal, uh, I went to a high school football game on Friday night and my youngest daughter is, in the high school marching band and my oldest daughter is a huge sports fan is in the student cheering section. And I really wanted to make sure I got back for that game on Friday night, which is why I had a 5:50 AM flight central time on Friday, which Steven was also on my flight. So he's a young person and he handled his business in a better way than I did. But I went to bed at three central set my alarm for four central to get up, to get on the four 30 shuttle to the airport. My hotel's like 12 minutes away from the airport to get on my 550 flight. So I'm planning to sleep for an hour. So I'm a snoozer. Are you a snooze button guy typically? No. Yeah, I'm a big snooze button guy. Cause there are not all that many, more often than not, I don't have a do or die wake up time. Cause I'm not a real person. I'm a sports writer, Buckeye talk. So I'm used to snoozing. So I, my alarm went off at four o'clock but I snoozed because I'm my body. I like what forgot where I was and I just snoozed and I, yeah. It's the flaw of alarm clocks because when I'm asleep and something wakes me up, the first thing my brain does is think, well, if I just shut that noise off, I get to go back to sleep. Yeah. Unless there's recognition of why the buzz is happening or the tone or the whatever, then so there needs to be an alarm clock that like yells at you you have to get on your flight. It can't just buzz. It has yes. to be something that tells you the words of why it's going off. What are the stakes of, of getting up right Exactly. Now? Exactly. So the stakes were pretty, were pretty high for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But so for my 550 wheels up flight, I woke up at 505, and, which is, is not very much time. That's insane. And I, and I had not completely packed. I had crap laying all over my hotel room. So I ran, I hopped in the shower for 30 seconds. I couldn't find any towels. You took a shower? 30 seconds. Because what, what happens to me is when I wake up and I'm in that panic mode, my body goes and explodes in sweat. And I don't want to do that to anybody. So I took a 30-second shower, but I couldn't find the towels in the bathroom. So I had to dry off with the bath mat. So I dried off with the bath mat. I also couldn't find the soap or, or, soap or the shampoo. So I just stood underwater for 30 Might seconds. Might as well not have taken a shower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Threw everything in my bag, 
called a lift, ran downstairs. The lift picked me up at like 527 or something. And I was like, I got to get this. So the guy did a great job, got me there. I get into the building at like 538 or something for a 550 flight. And I get up to the security line and there's like 60 people in the security line. And it's like, I'm clearly screwed. And you don't so have pre-check? I don't have pre-check, which when I texted this out the other day, everybody was like, get pre-check, get pre-check. But I don't fly that much. It's a hundred, what is it? Like 125 bucks? It's, uh, the last I checked, it was $80 for five years. Oh, that does seem like a good deal. It's it's pays for itself the very first time you have to like do that. The, the scenario you're talking about, it pays for itself like 10 times over. So instead of pre-check, I had sympathy, mercy, beg people check. So I like asked the person at the back of the line, I was like, I'm going to miss my flights or anyway, I can go up front. And he was like, nope. So then I just stood in line <laughs> for like, no, the, the, dis, the di, absolute disdain at the airport for people who have overslept for their flight absolute disdain among the workers. And I wanted to be like, well, listen, I'm on a podcast. I was up. It wasn't like I just, over, I slept for, I was supposed to sleep for an hour and I slept for two. Sorry. So I go to, I just got out of line and I went to the front and I just said, I'm going to miss my flight if I can't cut in line. And the person at the front said, well, you have to ask everybody in line if it's okay with them. You can't just ask the people who are up next. You have to ask everybody. So I just went, excuse me. I overslept for my flight. Could I play? And I just did that. And then, and I said, I'm throwing myself on your mercy. And then enough people went like, fine, ah, fine, whatever, that the, the woman like let me go. And then it, I went in. And is it like the old, one. yeah, it's like the old wedding thing where it's like, if anyone here objects to this man yeah. entering a union with this flight, or actually more like interunion with this uh, body scanner. Speak now right. or forever hold your peace. I, I didn't know if I should say like, I'm the co-host of a moderately popular podcast about football. I didn't know if that would help or hurt in the moment. So they let me through, uh, took up my shoes, my belt, do the thing, go through security. I don't even, don't put my shoes on, don't put my belt on. My shorts are falling down as I'm running through the airport, carrying my shoes get to the gate, everybody at the, pl every, at the gate is already on the plane, but I make it and as soon as I go through, they say, last call, the door will close in three minutes. So I made it by three minutes and then I had to sit next to some poor woman just drenched in my own wow. sweat and filth, um, but I made it. So what'd you ask? <laughs> I don't know. I we, there was yeah, a question. There was, I think you were leading into, you were hustling back to get back for oh. Friday night football. Because so then I there get was... back for Friday night football and it was wonderful. And it was such a typical, normal, fully engaged high school football game. And it was well played and the band was awesome and the students were going crazy and both crowds were into it. And Caden Saunders, who's a top 100 national recruit, goes to my the same high school as my children. And he's going to Penn State next year. And he's like the best receiver for that team. And they were shutting him down. They dealt, every team double teams him every snap. So the team put him at quarterback for two series. And he started playing quarterback and was like throwing passes and just taking direct snaps and running with the ball because it was the only way they could get him to ball. And it like rallied the team. It was great football. I was like ready to write a game story, even though I was only there as a fan. But my, my thing, Nathan, is that like, I hope – people listening to this didn't have the whole security line over sleeping experience, but 
that was like a Friday night high school football game that like fed my soul. And so Minnesota was great. Credit to Minnesota. I really do like that stadium. I think it's a great setup. But it was that Friday yep. night at a high school game that made me feel like, oh, my gosh, like football is back. Like I can't believe it. And I know it was the third week of the high school season. The week before, my kids' high school, their game was canceled because the other team got COVID. And they had to cancel a game. So, like, it was like, man, that was a reminder of it's not completely normal yet. And then they had this game that felt really, really normal. And it made me really, really excited to see everybody at Ohio Stadium on Saturday. I think the closest I've ever cut a flight is on Southwest one time. I showed up, and I was in the B group, and they had started putting the A group on the flight. That gets my closest I've ever come, that's which isn't really that close. That is, but it's but it's like the perfect. That's like perfect timing. If you did that yeah. every time, you'd be like, "Oh, I, I maximized my time away from this airport and got here just in time to make the flight." So uh, I I think that's about as close as I want to cut it, though. I don't think I wanted this uh, this experience like what you know. This was too close. The worst I ever did though was I covered a Ohio State basketball game at Florida in December of two thousand five. It was the game that Greg Oden and Mike Conley lost at Florida in the regular season. And I had such an early flight because I was flying to my parents' house for Christmas that I didn't even get a hotel. I was like, I'm just going to sleep in my rental car in the parking lot of the hotel because I'm, gonna, it, I'm only going to sleep for an hour and a half and I don't, it's not worth it. And so I woke up in my rental car after my plane had left because guess what? That was a terrible, terrible plan. So that time I did not make it. I guess I don't understand sleeping in the car as opposed to just going and uh, trying to get a nap at your gate at the airport. That, that would have been, had I known you back then, that would have been great advice for you to give me. Well, I give great advice in retrospect. So don't just any part of a plan that involves like, yeah, 75 minutes sleep, that'll work is not a good plan. So, uh, so Yeah, that's fine. So we've covered a lot of, I think, some of the story of the week things we covered already. Defense has to be better. C.J. Stroud has to be better. The other big thing that's hanging out there is just health. Does Ohio State get healthier, whether that's the cornerbacks or, or uh, Josh Proctor, who was hurt late in that game, whether he's available, we'll see. We also need to know what's going on with, with Oregon. Kayvon Thibodeau um, sprained a foot, sprained an ankle, something in that game, uh, the Fresno State win that they had this past week. And also one of their starting linebackers, um, Drew Mathis, looked like he had a much more significant leg injury he could be out and that was we thought all along that this defense was going to really challenge Ohio State it was going to be a big step up from the Minnesota game and now we just don't know how many Oregon players are going to be healthy how much how many of their best players are going to be healthy for this matchup on Saturday I do think it's that the Thibodeau injury obviously is I mean go find all the national analysts who were watching Kayvon Thibodeau on Saturday and calling him the best football player in America again I think he's a little technique lacking and and is pretty much like a speed strength combo now it's an extraordinary speed strength combo but i i do think that ohio state's tackles have a chance to deal with a guy like that dewan jones i think there was one play against minnesota i think it was against boy Maffe, where uh there was an inside move and some good hand fighting and he got he sort of lost his balance and fell on his back dewan jones and i'm mentioning that because it stood out as like to me like one of the only times where Dewan Jones really got beat. I think there was maybe another time where a guy got around the edge a little bit on him, but there was a lot of reinforcement against Minnesota about how good Ohio State's offensive line is, which is not new, but 
you know, watch, watch some of these routes develop, some of these deep routes. And again, they do their best stuff. They are devastating when they max protect and run a two-man route. And the two guys in the route are Wilson and Olave, and they're keeping Ruckert and a back in to help. And there's then they really can't get past him. But that idea of – to me, it's you're going to line up Thibodeau over Dewan Jones as much as you can. And what does that look like? And it felt like to me, at least, I don't know, it felt like to me, Nathan, that Dewan Jones held up pretty darn well. Yeah, like I said, I had not gone and looked at those PFF ratings yet, but I thought the offensive line looked tremendous. Um, I mean, Stroud was never really pressured, never really like rattled that much by um, by being hurried or having somebody in his face. Um, there were definitely times where he looked rattled, but it wasn't necessarily because of that. I thought it was just more the game circumstances. Um, and and then what they did with the run game, obviously, just I mean speaks for itself i mean it's i I, watching through like i had mentioned how they they opened up that whole m and i was uh on the that run that mine williams had up the middle and on the broadcast they said something like how many trucks could you drive through this hole luke whipler i thought played really well there were multiple times where you saw luke whipler clearing a guy out to create a big hole that some running back was taking advantage of so um curious to see what happens with that position pff grades are not good this really? feels I almost this almost feels wrong to me I, I don't i don't know um the pass blocking grades for ohio state are not good nobody above 65 the run blocking grades are good dewan jones run blocking grade is like one of the best in the country um maybe we shouldn't i wouldn't put too much stock in though just because it's early and it's hard to sometimes get the early stats sorted out uh I, there was definitely a particular run where Paris Johnson cleared out the defensive tackle and Luke Whipler came in behind and got to the second level on a linebacker. And it was like, that is exactly how that's supposed to work. And Mayan Williams took care of the rest. So I, I did yep. think that across the board, the line showed you. And that's the thing. I mean, for CJ Stroud, it's like, Oh yeah, your receiver was open by 10 yards. It's like, well, why was that? Well, cause my receivers are first round pick and my offensive line gives me all the time in the world. So I don't have to be, you know, Aaron Rodgers. I can just be a guy who hits the wide open guy and that's enough. And that that's going to continue to be the case against a lot of teams. I thought the one completion to Ruckert too was kind of a, a mix of the two things you're talking about. Cause it, it looked like he had like stayed into block on this play. And then he released late on kind of this, it was a uh, like dragging him across the middle, almost like a, like a tight end throwback screen, except I don't think that's what it was, but it was like that second level route the underneath level route and throwing it to him. I thought that was just a fun wrinkle. I'll see if they go back to that at some point later this season. I thought that was Stroud's best throw to that point in the game. And they came back the very next play and they had G Scott in the game instead of Cade Stover as the second tight end. G Scott was an offset tight end right next to Rucker over top of Rucker. And they ran Rucker down the seam and it was clearly where CJ Stroud wanted to go it was like a setup of like, Hey, we had, we ran this drag route where Ruckert was open. Now let's hit him vertical and Minnesota covered it and Minnesota to the, to its credit, uh, covered it really well. Olave on the opposite side was running a similar route down the opposite seam and was wide open, but it's like CJ didn't get to his third read, which is fine. And he ended up just floating and, and throwing the ball away, but you could see, you know, I thought there were probably another, I thought there were at least two, maybe three plays where they were really trying to do something with Rucker and it either got covered or CJ wouldn't take it. And he wound up with just that one catch. But I think you can see how they are trying to feature him a little. 
I, I'm not trying to make excuses for anybody, but I really have been trying to put myself in the mind of CJ Stroud a little bit and then think about what's ahead of him for this next week. And especially because they get a couple extra days here to look back at film, to just have, you know, text each other and talk about things and be like, and for Ryan Day to just point out things like what you're talking about and how much does that help him the next time he goes through this. And we'll find out, I guess, when that game happens on Saturday. Anything else you want to mention story of the week wise? No, no, I, I, I just, I wish, I mean, I'm sure there'll be some highlights. I haven't really looked. I'm just really curious to see if Anthony Brown's better than Tanner Morgan and what that means. Yeah, I haven't looked at much Oregon yet either, but the same as you. I want to get some eyes on them early this week. Uh, walk the line. Ohio State opened as, a, as an 11.5-point favorite. That line or that spread had been out there a little while. There were some games that were already kind of on the books. Today it's up to – well, it was up to 14 at the time I took that note. Let me go make sure it hasn't changed again since then. But the, the line has grown, and I think it's probably um, – partially if not completely because of Oregon's first game they beat Fresno State at home 31 to 24 it's kind of an uninspiring result and then the injuries we were just talking about for Oregon potentially affect it more so yeah it's at 14 right now and the over under has grown from 58 and a half to 64 wow that's basically so it's basically the same line and the same same over under as last week against Minnesota very similar what do you think about those 14 points as we're sitting here on Sunday evening? So I'll, I'll tell you what, because we, we were nervous about the 14 last week and it wound up, wound up being a push and we liked the under and we were wrong and it went over. Ohio State just feels like a stay away right now until we get a better handle on them. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what corners are going to play. I still don't know, even if the top corners do play, how much they should be trusted. You know, like there's... I don't exactly know. I think it's possible C.J. Stroud makes a jump, right, for the first chance he ever has, as you said, of watching himself. He might be a new quarterback on Saturday. I also said, you know, as I said after the game, there might be some things there that are not first-game jitter things. I just I – w- I can't imagine betting very much money on Ohio State for any reason right now because at corner and at quarterback, as much as they have a lot of certainty – on the offensive line and at receiver at cornerback and quarterback, there's so much uncertainty that I can't imagine spending your money on it. The 14 points makes sense to me. I know how they got to that, especially if it was starting around 11, 12 um, and, and seeing what happened with Oregon over this past week. It makes sense to me, but I'm with you. I would not, I don't have a good handle on who I would pick as far as that spread right now. And I think you, I think if seven banks plays, I think that stabilizes things. I, I think if seven, I think seven banks would come in and provide a more stable level of a more consistent level of cornerback play. Um, I'm less confident in that from Cam Brown, mostly just because I haven't seen Cam Brown do it. I haven't right. seen Cam Brown play a perimeter cornerback spot um, as a starter in the Big Ten. Like it's, we haven't seen it. So until we do, I don't know that I, I necessarily assume that his level of play is going to be that much higher than Watts or. Burke even now I do think what's interesting what does start to intrigue me is the old Kerry Combs approach where okay I only need that guy to be this good for this many snaps I need this guy to be good for this many snaps and now you start to piece it together with that rotation that's what starts to become a little bit interesting when you get everybody healthy again yeah and some of the uh, you know I don't know relatively vanilla looks on defense is like okay well 
it's always the great debate with Ohio State. Well, they won without blitzing a million guys, and they won without, I think, you know, throwing a lot of wrinkles into their coverage. So maybe they were saving it for Oregon. I don't know, but I think they, I think they need to be better. We have to, especially on defense, I think the talent level of the opponent on defense is double, if not more. There, there are like, I think, I think Oregon is going to every snap put, if they're relatively healthy, put between four and six defenders on the field who could play for Ohio state right now. And I don't know that that's true of anybody in the Big Ten. So I think we have to keep that in mind. I don't know that it was true in this last game, even as depleted as uh, Ohio State was on defense with healthy guys. You know what I mean? Like, would would they have taken any of Minnesota's corners over the freshmen that they put out there? No. And, and But I think Mikhail Wright at corner, Thibodeau, obviously. I think the two five-star linebackers, Flo and Sewell, and then mm. maybe another guy or two. That's, that's what you're talking about here. So we, we just have to keep that in mind. I'm not trying to be – I know it's not fun for Ohio State fans sometimes. It's like you win, and then you get an hour and 20-minute podcast about, you know, sort of negative stuff. But I just do not, do not misinterpret stuff because everybody misinterprets stuff in week one, right? Michigan fans are going to be too excited because they beat Western Michigan. And Washington fans are going to be ready to set their whole program on fire because Washington lost at home to Montana. And then Washington and Michigan are going to play this week. And everybody's going to think that Michigan's going to blow Washington off the field. And guess what? They're probably still very comparable programs, right? Even they just had two kind of crazy results in week one. So just because Oregon only beat Fresno state by seven and Ohio state, you know, rallied and had some big plays in the second half. Don't underestimate Oregon's defensive skill. Which leads us into fear factor, which is basically us putting some kind of a number value, like going one through 10 or one to a hundred. How worried should Ohio state fans be about this game? So if we say, if we say it's like an eight out of 10, I don't think that means we're giving the other team an 80% chance to win. It's just kind of gauging how worried should Ohio state fans be about this. And maybe you could even say, I don't know if that's in a vacuum or if that's just relative to the rest of the schedule or whatever. I, I think it's about now that we're seeing some injuries pop up for Oregon, early in the week it's at least like a six out of ten for me worry wise Uh, yeah I was gonna say five or six just I mean it's so hard Nathan because everything for Ohio State always comes back to it's the offensive line is so good and it's two receivers and even top four pass catchers when you throw in Jackson Smith and Jigman Jeremy Ruckert are so explosive you know there's going to be big plays you just know it and so that is such a get out of jail free card it's like shy of the playoff. How could you ever get to like eight or eight and a half? Because, well, okay, you're going to tell me it's an eight and a half. Well, here's my Garrett Wilson's the answer to the eight and a half, but I yeah. do think a five or a six is legitimate just because I think they'll find a way to block Thibodeau. And I, there was a play early on where you could see it's just how it's going to be. Mayan Williams was in pass protection and he stepped right to Dewan Jones to help right that it's like where are they going to help on stuff and they can keep tight ends in and they can that they can help to if Dewan Jones winds up with Kayvon Thibodeau a lot they can help him and they will and so then what then what's Oregon going to do where are they going to bring some blitzes are they going to be able to stop the run game with their linebackers 
But in the end, Wilson Olave are, are so game-breaking. I just think it might be five or six, and that, that might be as high as we get in the regular season, Nathan, for this fear factor rating. I think you might be right. Uh, one of my favorite stats from the Minnesota game, Ohio State had four scoring plays of 56 or more yards. Last year, with Justin Fields and the same two great receivers and a really good offensive line and Trey Sermon doing what he did last year, they had, in eight games, they had five plays of 50 or more yards. Wow. That is amazing. So they almost got there in one game. Um, and I think the national leader last year had like uh, 14 and 12 games or something like that. So to get four plays of that length in one game is, is impressive. So I don't know if that's always going to be there, but I think some explosiveness is, I think you're right. It's always going to be there that even when CJ Stroud is not perfect, even when he's still feeling his way through at some point, Olave and Wilson are going to be open. And now we're seeing, you know, what Trevion Henderson can do. Um, and what Mayan Williams can do even when the play is designed wrong. By the way, I did see one of the, the, the things that helped spring that play was Minnesota was not set on defense at the start of that play. The tempo, you knew the tempo was a factor. I thought it was tempo and an unbalanced formation, and then you go the opposite way. But the tempo was clearly part of it, and Ryan Day loves to do that. They used the tempo. There were times when Tom Herman got here when Ohio State was just up-tempo all the time. They're never going to be that way again under Ryan Day, but they are very strategically up-tempo, and Ryan Day knows exactly when to use it, and he often wants to try to – that's when he tries to take some chances to pop something on some of those. And So I don't think he thought that run was going to pop for 70 yards. But, yeah, you have to credit them for that because that's part of what they do. Yep. We'll take one more break here. We're going to come back. We are going to throw some darts at my pretty terrible – preseason AP ballot and talk about what I might do for Tuesday and talk about what we saw in the rest of the Big Ten on this first weekend. You're listening to Buckeye Talk. All right, we're back on Buckeye Talks. Monday Madness, it's time for ballot boxing. This is where I give Doug a chance to uh, take out, use my ballot as like a, a heavy bag and just like wail away on it like he's getting ready for a, I was going to say heavyweight fight, but clearly it wouldn't be a heavyweight fight. You're whatever, whatever you are. Cruiserweight. Cruiserweight. Okay. I, yeah, yeah. I am, I have no muscles. I have very skinny arms, but I have a gut and I weigh over 200 pounds. Okay. Okay. I talk. <laughs> just, just so everyone knows my number one team Clemson lost my number 17 Miami lost, although that was to Alabama. Uh, my number nine team, Washington, lost. My number 10 team, North Carolina, lost. It doesn't sound like Notre Dame's doing great. We just got a, a tweet that I thought that you would like, uh, Doug, which was our friend Adam Rittenberg from ESPN tweeting, Jack Cohn running way too much in this game for hashtag Irish. Uh, the Notre Dame-Florida State game is happening as we speak. Um, so those were my, my worst preseason picks but you can take any other shots that you'd like to take at it. So I think people had questions about Clemson's offensive line, but I don't know that they had this many questions and DJ looked young. DJ missed a lot of stuff. And I will say, and everybody should be listening to the college football playoff show. It's going to really ramp up now that we actually have games to talk about, but I made the same picks on that show as I did on this show. And in that I picked, Georgia to be the number one seed in the playoff. And I picked Clemson to miss the playoff. 
And those two picks I feel very good about today. Yo, you were be- pretty good, yeah. Because I thought Georgia's defense was awesome. I thought JT Daniels was not much better than average, but they're going to get healthier with their pass catchers, and Georgia's going to get better offensively. Clemson feels vulnerable. And, but I also picked Alabama to miss the playoff. And it was like, okay, they're the two dominating programs of this era. I thought they were both vulnerable this year, and Clemson absolutely looked vulnerable, and Alabama looked like the same old Alabama. So I might be exactly wrong on that. But I don't think – if I were Clemson, as much as here we are talking about Ohio State, I think Clemson – I would be worried if I were Clemson because you don't – it's one of those things. Okay, you might not play a ranked team again the rest of the year. Is that good or bad? Because are you cer- good- And they certainly won't play a defense that good the rest of the year. So uh, does that mean, hey, we're not playing a ranked team, we get a chance to look awesome? Or does it mean like, hey, congratulations for beating Wake Forest, nobody's going to respect it, and you're going to lose every one-loss battle among the playoff committee because when you played a good team, you didn't score an offensive touchdown. So, I mean, Clemson was already playing an easy ACC schedule, and the ACC did not do itself any favors this weekend. I mean, North Carolina losing at Virginia Tech, uh, Miami – getting thumped against Alabama, not really looking like it's anywhere near that, that level of team. So, and then whatever's going on in this Notre Dame, Florida state game. So I, it doesn't shock me at all. If Clemson goes 11 and one at this point, I don't know that there's really a game that they're even after not being able to score against Georgia. I don't know who they're going to not be favored against maybe pretty easily the rest of the way. But I think you're right that I don't know that that's going to be enough to impress. They're going to need help. They're going to need the rest of this to be so messy that when they win the ACC and then win the ACC championship game, and then people look in retrospect and say, okay, their offense looked bad, but their defense also looked great. I mean, they they only gave up 10 points. So they had half of a bad game in the first game of the year against another playoff caliber team. So I'm not sure that they still don't find a way to sneak in. It's just going to depend on what the rest of the landscape looks like. Yeah, the committee likes well-rounded teams, and I don't – like, we've kind of debated that. Does that matter? Who cares if they, – they don't want you to win 10-7, and they don't want you to win 55-52. They want you to win 31-24, right, right. for whatever reason. So, or, well, 31-17 to 17 or yeah. Yeah, something like that, yeah. So, for whatever reason, Clemson feels like it has a real problem on offense, and so they're going to have to prove that they don't or they're going to be held back like that. They're going to be viewed as like a defense-only team. And again, where Georgia – and again, nobody scored an offensive touchdown because Georgia's touchdown was a pick six. But Georgia has – Georgia is going to get healthier and better. And DJ is going to get more experienced, and he'll get better too. But I think there's a clear path for Georgia to show out the rest of the way, both with level of opponent and raising their ceiling. And I did think – I never thought this was an elimination game for Georgia because you're in the SEC and the SEC champs always going to get in. But I thought it might be an elimination game for Clemson. And I think that's on the table right now. I think you're probably right. Um, Let me see who else I was. I I had Penn state higher than most teams. I had them or most voters. I had them 11th. I think that looks pretty smart right now. Um, I think Alabama is going to have to be my number one. My, for those of you who are waking up Monday morning wondering why you haven't seen the AP poll, it doesn't come out until Tuesday this week because there, there's a game tonight, and I think there's a game, there's some games Monday too, I think. So no poll until Tuesday afternoon. You'll see the poll, and then we go on to the regular schedule. It'll usually be Sundays from here on in. But if I'm, I think right now 
I started off, I had Clemson one, Oklahoma two, Alabama three, Ohio State four, Georgia five. I think I'm right now I'm leaning Alabama one, Georgia two, Ohio State three. And then I'm trying to decide between A&M and Oklahoma for four and five. Yeah, Oklahoma has some real issues. I think, again, they, they – I, although I haven't watched all of that game yet, is, I wonder if that game's going to have a little feel a little bit like Ohio State-Indiana last year. A little bit. They, State- yeah. Uh, Tulane scored, I think. I think they scored they – they were down by 19 going into the fourth and then scored two touchdowns or something like that. So the final score looks bad. And I know Tulane, you know, took a, that's Tulane that's dealing with a hurricane and the game moved and all this stuff. And Oklahoma couldn't do more than that. But they, they have some issues. But I also think they'll probably figure, out, figure it out and be okay. Alabama, I would probably have Georgia number one because I just typically early in the season, I say, well, who has the best win? And I do think Nick, Nick Saban, diabolical scheduling genius, found another fake good opponent where they got all the juice of people being like, I saw at least somebody pick Miami on like the national people picking. I saw somebody, at least one Miami insignia on the, the, the game one or week one picks. They get all the juice from that. And Miami is going to go seven and five. But when they show at the end, you know, they're yeah. like, Oh, it's a top 25 win for Bama. And it's like, yeah, but they actually were never that good. They just had De'Eric King, and people got all juiced up, and it was a fake good team. So Bryce Young looked the best of the second-year quarterbacks by far, but I would caution against the fake goodness of that opponent. I, I totally hear that. I'm just – as I'm trying to figure out who should be number one, I don't think it can be Ohio State. And Georgia didn't score an offensive touchdown either, as you pointed out. So I, I don't know who I would put there if not Alabama for this week. If I just, I just don't, if I had a top five matchup in week one, I'd just gonna make the winner. The winner's number one. That's just what I, but that I'm not saying, but I also, I also might actually think George is the best team because I'm not sure JT Daniels couldn't have done a version of that to that Miami defense, as opposed to that Clemson defense. Cause that Clemson defense, I think the three best defenses are Alabama, Georgia, and Clemson. And so we saw those two teams. We saw what happens when two great defenses play each other. Now, people are going to make the point, as they always do, and there's a lot of fairness to it in some ways. Wisconsin and Penn State had a 0-0 halftime score. And do people look at that and say great defense or bad offense? Which is it? But please watch Georgia and tell me – watch Georgia Clemson and tell me it doesn't look like they're playing a different game from what Penn State and Wisconsin played a thousand percent like watching that Georgia Clemson game you're like oh Georgia's got a bunch of NFL guys out here making it really difficult on this sophomore quarterback for Clemson yeah so and it's a reminder of Ohio State and Oklahoma when they are trying to play at this level and they have great skill guys and great offensive lines their defenses have to get to a certain level or they're just they're just going to have a really tough time because what Clemson Georgia and Alabama do defensively is is elite Next up is margin call. Actually, I want to mention one more thing in ballot boxing. I had Cincinnati lower than any other voter in the preseason. I had them 22nd, which they were, uh, they were eighth by the consensus vote. Um, I heard from a lot of Cincinnati fans. I, they will definitely be moving up on my ballot, but it's, also, it's almost as much because of how wrong I was about the people ahead of them than I 
am admitting how wrong I was about Cincinnati because I do think I had them in the right range. If you looked and, – and so do other people who were just evaluating based on what they think the talent of Cincinnati was. If you look at the Phil Steele preseason power rankings, he had them 17th. ESPN's FPI had them 17th. So I was lower compared to them. But the ones who were not trying to, I think, base things off of either just – where that team finished last year by record and where they think this year's team might finish by record. People who are just trying to make a talent evaluation had them basically in the same range that I did, but I, I, they will probably be in my top 20 this week, probably even closer to like 15, 16. I do think Cincinnati is an interesting spot. They have a better quarterback than a lot of teams are going to play. They have a couple NFL guys uh, defensively. They have a couple super seniors. And I'm a guy who picked Iowa State to make the playoff, and Iowa State beat Northern Iowa 16 to 10. And I'm not so sure, like after we like, listen, Miami of Ohio, I get it, but Desmond Ritter's the real deal, and they've got some other dudes, uh, got some good tight ends. I don't know that Cincinnati's not better than Iowa State, right? So if like, okay, Cincinnati's not Bama, Clemson, Georgia, Ohio State, Oklahoma when it comes to talent, but you look at teams like Iowa State, North Carolina who lost, Washington who lost, teams like that, that second tier. Are we sure after watching Penn State, Wisconsin, that Cincinnati wouldn't beat both those teams? I, I don't know. Desmond Ritter's better. Desmond Ritter pl- has played better than Sean Clifford or Graham Mertz. Like, we'll get into this a little bit more on Big Ten stuff, but I, as soon as you get past the, the top tier, and that top tier probably is those five super supremely talented teams. I think you could make an argument that who are you sure is better than Cincinnati of any of anybody else that's not the top five. I, I hear the point you're making. I think it was some of the points that Cincinnati fans were throwing at me on Twitter, you know, basically like, Hey, I guess you haven't seen this list. that says that we have two guys who might be all American candidates. I'm like, okay, but that's, that's kind of true of every team in the top 20 to some extent. Like everybody has like a couple of guys. Like, so again, it's, it's more about like achievement and what you do when you get on the field, they want to say, well, you know, did you not watch the game where they almost beat Georgia last year? I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's, you got to beat somebody at some point you've got it. There's gotta be some, something set aside. My big miss, I guess, was just leaning towards the talent of LSU or even Wisconsin over what I thought was an emptier achievement from Cincinnati last year. And now I think that'll probably just get corrected as the season goes along or yeah, not because no. Cincinnati's got a couple of big games coming up. Yeah. And we'll talk more about Indiana, but I don't know right now I'd pick Cincinnati to beat Indiana. So they'll have a chance to prove it. The good thing about Cincinnati and we put Cincinnati in, they were the last team on the college football show that we discussed. Do they deserve to be in the discussion? And we did put them in. So we entered the season with 10 teams in our conversation and Cincinnati was one of them. And one of the things was quarterback, pretty big stud, like short of like Spencer Rattler, Sam Howell, you'd take Desmond Ritter with anybody. I think Ohio State would, I mean, if you're trying to win a national championship with Ohio State right now and you don't care about the future, I'd take Desmond Ritter. Because he's a talented guy who's, who's played for three years as opposed to a true freshman who's also talented. So that kind of thing. And I think Cincinnati is a better secondary than Ohio State. So, like, that's the stuff we're talking about. And they have a real pass rusher. So I do think um, – but the good thing is they're in their third and fourth game, they're going to get a chance to show it. And if they do it, if they beat Indiana and Notre Dame, they're going to be in everybody's top 10, top eight, and 
there won't be much of a debate. And if they don't do it, then it's like, okay, cool. They couldn't beat Notre Dame when Notre Dame has a noodle arm quarterback. So what are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, they were already consensus top eight, and I was the one that was dragging on them. You know, I was the one that was was pulling them back a little bit. So we'll see. Um, They're they're probably going to even creep up a little bit this week. But you mentioned Indiana. Um, Our next thing up on the list is margin call, where we're like picking what we're buying or selling around college football this week. And mine was about the Indiana Hoosiers. I feel bad because I've been like this Indiana hater a little bit the last couple of years. But um, I am selling Michael Penix as like even a fringe all Big Ten quarterback candidate right now we had a discussion on this podcast at one point it's it's interesting that you brought up the Desmond Ritter thing because we brought up at one point like oh should Ohio State for just this year should they take what they have in their quarterback room at the time when it was the competition was still going on or should they take Michael Penix like that was a conversation that we had he should have thrown six interceptions on Saturday he was awful and I, I thought Iowa played good defense I thought Michael Penix was awful. So the three picks he did throw in the first half, the first one, the receiver slipped coming out of his outcut and it hit him in the chest and bounced in the air. And the Iowa guy caught it, and ran it back for a touchdown, but it, it wasn't on Penix. The guy slipped and it hit, it hit the receiver in the chest. The second one was the kind of play that I wonder about Ohio state defensive backs making where the same Iowa DB you could see him staring Penix down pre-snap. He took half a step backwards and broke on the ball before it was out of Penix's hands on an out route and caught it and ran it back for pick six. Awesome play. And now they're down like 28 to three and Penix is trying to be a savior and keep his team alive. And he makes like a crazy person throw where he's out of the pocket and in desperation tries to flip a little pass to a guy six yards ahead of him and just flips it right to an Iowa guy. So it's like not his fault. Great play by a DB. Now you're down and you're desperate. I did think he ripped some throws also, but I also thought it felt like Indiana guys, talking about Ohio State guys running wide open against Minnesota, it did not feel like Indiana had much room to throw because Iowa's defense, I thought, really took it to them. And I would, I think, instead of Michael Penix a year ago in game one reaching out and hitting the pylon, against Penn State this was like the pylon this was Iowa picked up the pylon and beat Michael Penix (laughs) over the head with it for a minute they were down 14 nothing in the first three minutes because they lost leverage on a touchdown run that looked a lot like the Mayan Williams touchdown run but it wasn't misdirection the wrong way stuff it was just the Iowa or the Indiana corner just completely gave up contain and like dove inside it was a crazy person cornerback play I, I I have no idea what he's doing and Tyler Goodson was gone down the sideline and then like three plays later it's a pick six and it's like 12 45 left in the first quarter and it's 14 nothing and Iowa you don't want to you can't you can't do that at Iowa now this the crowd is on you and it was over and then I, I thought Indiana had a couple things go against him from a penalty standpoint they had a thing where Iowa went forward on a fourth and two and they tackled the guy, and then the Indiana defender, in the course of tackling the Iowa player, like spun, tackled him forward, so he made the first down because he spun him as he tackled him. And it was like everything rolled against Iowa, and they just got steamrolled, and they were down 31-3 to before they knew what would happen. I felt like they did not handle expectations. It felt like Michael Penix did not handle expectations. But now that their balloon has been bursted, busted, burst, bust, 
they popped their balloon. Now that it's popped, if you're selling Michael Penix, I will buy him because his stock has gone down. I, it's like I wouldn't, I wouldn't have wanted him preseason, but I actually take him now because I still think Indiana might beat somebody, but everything won against them at Iowa, and Iowa was good. I think they might beat somebody too, only because they play a lot of good somebodies this year. I think they could have been as good or better than they were last year, but the record wasn't going to be that great because they, yeah. it's a pretty tough schedule this year for them. I do want to point this out about Michael Penix. I, I just watching that game, I had to start to ask myself, like, is he closer to Adrian Martinez than he is an upper tier Big Ten quarterback? Adrian Martinez comes out as a true freshman against Ohio State in 2018, has a really good game, and has just never been able to replicate that and has been sort of seen as a thing. His lack of development has sort of held Nebraska yeah. back, among other things that have held Nebraska back. So take out the second half that Michael Penix had against Ohio State last year where he came out and just threw darts and was awesome. These are his other three. So the game right before that at Michigan State, 25 of 38, two touchdowns, two interceptions. The game after the Ohio State game against Maryland, 6 of 19, no touchdowns, no interceptions, and tears his ACL, so he's done for the year. And then right. now against Iowa, 14 of 31, no touchdowns, three interceptions. So those last three of his last four games, taking out the Ohio State game, he's completed 51.1% of his passes, two touchdowns, five interceptions. And, 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 and Maryland and, and Michigan State ain't Iowa. They're not even Ohio State. From a I will say – I, I also think part of the evaluation of him when he goes the wrong way is that he's left-handed because for whatever reason, left-handed quarterbacks look like they're throwing a shot put. LSU's got LSU guys is the same way. Yep. If you flipped on UCLA LSU and you watched LSU for two offensive plays, you were like, how in God's name are they going to win this game? The, the UCLA quarterback, what Dorian Thompson, I, I don't mean that he played. It's like, it's like, I take that guy a thousand times out of a thousand. I don't know who this shot putter is for mm -hmm. LSU and Michael Penix Sometimes it, it just looks gawky. It looks unnatural. But sometimes he, he'll still rip a ball in there, though, between defenses. Iowa man, Iowa made – I thought Iowa made his life really hard. Yep. And so I think it is a reminder, again, the level of defense that Iowa played on Saturday versus the level of defense that Minnesota played on Thursday night I think is not even within range of each other. Who would you have for margin call? Did you have a – Something so the, we, we have not talked about this yet. I just, I'm selling Master Teague. I know it's still Ohio State related. He chops his feet before he gets to the hole. He just, you can't give him the ball. It's got to be Mayan Williams and Trivion Henderson. And I got a little bit of feedback from people sort of like, hey, Mayan Williams, whatever. It's like, if you think that I'm underestimating Mayan Williams, I'm just trying to get the five-star running back on the field for Ohio State. Yeah. And if you want the three-star guy, Great. I'm just telling you, that's not who you want against Clemson, Alabama, and Georgia. That's all I'm telling you. I so, agree with what you say about Master Teague. And then as I rewatched the game, it just I, – I, it, it was struck me how much Mayan Williams is a more nimble version of Master Teague. And he's just – I mean, he's Tyler Goodson. He's Mo Ibrahim, right? He's a good Big Ten running back. Maybe, maybe. But that's his ceiling. And if that's what you want – I just – I don't understand when Ohio State fans, like, get caught in an underdog story. It's like, okay, fine. Let's just have Ohio State recruit a bunch of three-star underdogs. You can be Michigan State. I thought you guys wanted to win a national title. I saw a national championship running back on the field for Ohio State. It's Travion Henderson. The, watch the screen. Watch yep. the way he runs. Even the, what, his worst run of the night, 
because he had like a 10 yarder and a five yarder. The five yarder, he's one broken tackle away. He like breaks two tackles. Yep. If he breaks the third, he's gone. So, but Master Teague cannot get to the hole without stutter stepping. And you just, he can't, you cannot give him the ball when it matters if you're trying to do something. So I understand that they're probably not going to go all in on the, on the freshman right now, but the carries against Oregon should be 12 for Mayan Williams and 12 for Trevion Henderson at Master Teague. Great guy, cannot be in the game plan. I think also Ohio State fans should remember that in 2019, Ohio State's backfield had this really fun, like underdog story guy achieving beyond his expectations and um, uh, being this fun physical runner that people liked. His name was Master Teague. So I, I, I just, yes. the, 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 that person fills their role for a time, but that doesn't mean they get carries instead of J.K. Dobbins, which I think right. I actually remember texts advocating for that. So it's, it's not a shot at Mayan Williams. I just, I don't. Or Master Teague in some ways. It's just like, this is what it is. Like you, people have different levels of talent. Trevon Henderson is a, is a blessed guy and they need to get him on the field. But, but I do agree. Like, I think it is the Mayan master fight that we said might take, have to take place before they figure out the running back thing. It is a knockout. It is a third round knockout for Mayan Williams. So like credit to Mayan Williams for that. But man. They're, and they'll get there. I, I have no doubt they'll get there with Trevion. I just wonder if they'll get there this week. But my expectation will be the first series is Mayan Williams. The second series is Trevion Henderson. And they continue that rotation the whole game. And it is not a three-man rotation this week. I think I probably expect that too. Uh, last year, we used to wrap things up with our prediction for what we thought the college football playoff four teams were at that point. Doug is doing a whole podcast about that a couple times a week, and I'm not really doing my playoff predictions. I'm not going to really start those until later towards the middle of the season when those start to come out. So we decided to change it this year. We're going to do who's number two, which is picking who we think the second best team in the Big Ten is, which I think will be a really interesting segment someday when Ohio State is plausibly not the number one team in the Big Ten. Um, but this week we're picking, I guess, still who is number two behind Ohio State. I'm still picking Penn State. I really thought about picking Iowa there, and I think you can make a strong case for Iowa, as good as they looked um, in kind of just demolishing Indiana in every way on Saturday at home. I'm still going to give Penn State credit for going on the road and winning and um, also being a very disruptive defense, really rattling Wisconsin and getting a, a pretty huge road win and now sort of setting themselves up as you know getting that win out of the way maybe brings Ohio State into focus for them as like this this really huge matchup down the road it's between those two and I just would like to welcome Graham Mertz officially to the Wisconsin noodle arm quarterback <laughs> room we acted like Graham Mertz was not a noodle arm he's a noodle arm I, I like like show me something that's not that because that well, Saturday was not it I sent this text to our subscribers, 614-350-3315, as I was watching the games on Saturday, that it gave me some perspective. Watching that game in particular gave me some perspective on C.J. Stroud, and I had not rewatched the Ohio State game at that point. It gave me some perspective because I'm sitting there watching a redshirt freshman who has so much room to grow, and I'm watching um, Sean Clifford, who is – like, we have a garden. Like, he has bolted. 
like he has he's done the thing where like plants like start to have like weird flowers grow on them and stuff because they're just done producing fruit sean clifford has bolted and graham mertz is i've got another analogy this year our tomatoes didn't grow very well because we pruned them too early we should have just let them grow and we got too fancy with it we 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 got ahead of ourselves we were too smart for our own good it's great that wisconsin went and got itself a top 100 quarterback but if you don't know what to do with him from that point on what good does it do you you haven't developed anything and i think that's what's happened there i think they they got they're halfway there but it's it's the same thing that happened with michigan we thought jim harbaugh was going to bring in these guys and develop them and he did a good job bringing in highly recruited guys but hasn't done anything with them and i think wisconsin that's really what it's starting to look like with graham mertz he's going to just be another Jack Cohn. Like if, if they had had Jack Cohn for that game on Saturday, they had just as much chance to win as they did the Graham Mertz brother. And listen, the, 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 some of the picks at the end, Jaquan Brisker made a great play. Again, some of the stuff for Ohio State defensively, you just saw some guys, Penn State, like Jaquan Brisker has the back at the end of the game. That's his coverage responsibility. The back stays in. He becomes a, a center fielder and makes a play where Graham Mertz is trying to get the ball to Ferguson as tight end, and, and Ferguson beats his guy, and Jaquan Brisker just sort of reads the play and steps in front and makes a game-saving interception. And I thought to myself, would an Ohio State guy have done that? So, Because Jaquan Brisker is like a veteran dude who came back for Penn State. Maybe Josh Proctor would have, maybe, but I, like, I'm not 100% sure. You just go around and you see defenses and guys in moments making plays in the secondary in the pass game to win games. So I think Penn State does deserve credit for that. But the one thing that Sean Clifford has that Graham Mertz doesn't is Jahan Dotson is behind yep. people. It's just like, I don't know. It felt like Jahan Dotson just lined up 15 yards behind the, the Wisconsin's deepest safety. And that's where he was when the ball was snapped. Because as soon they just would snap the ball and then they'd show the ball would be in the air and the camera would go downfield. It's like, oh, Jahan Dotson is 12 yards behind every Wisconsin player. And it happened multiple times. And it looked like what Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave do. So Penn State doesn't have a guy. I mean, you'd take C.J. Stroud over, over Sean Clifford 100 times out of 100. But they have some skill guys. Noah Kane did a little bit in the run game. I think we had eight carries, but showed a little something. And Dotson and Parker Washington and this uh, Lambert Smith guy. Is it uh, Keandre Lambert Smith? That's some real stuff. So I think that adds to it that I don't know that I believe in Penn State's quarterback, but I believe in their receivers. That's the thing. They made some plays on defense, but I still think I'd say Iowa number two right now. I thought Spencer Petras, I don't know that his numbers were great. He's like a big body. He'll make some throws. He'll do some stuff. He scored on a QB draw where he looked like a big rumbling, bumbling, stumbling guy, like physical. Tyler Goodson is like a, classic really good big 10 level back and that defense we know their offensive line is good and that defense doesn't let you breathe man and so i don't know that they can hang with Olave and wilson but i think iowa is going to win the west because i think spencer petrus the way things worked out in week one might be the best quarterback out there because i think i mean who i don't know i don't i don't know who would be better not graham mertz not well, nebraska's you- guy not no. Northwestern's guy, not, not Illinois' guy, not, not Purdue's Plummer. guy. Yeah, so. So I think if, if Iowa has the best quarterback in the West and then they do what they normally do and their defense is pretty good, I, I think they'll win that. And so I think it's close. And then Michigan, I think, is interesting. They beat a MAC team. It's, you know, Michigan needs to feel good about itself. They needed that. Cade McNamara is the starter. I just saw the J.J. McCarthy throw, the five-star quarterback. I've never seen a guy 
throw a deep ball that diagonal across the field. He threw it from one sideline to the opposite sideline, 50 yards down the field. It's a crazy person throw. I mean, what are you doing? If you're throwing that against anybody other than a Mac team, it's going to get picked, but it hit for a big touchdown and it gave them a little something to cheer about. And, you know, Blake Corum, I thought Michigan's run game looked good. Hassan Haskins, we know Donovan Edwards, the five-star freshman. They have a couple options in the backfield. And so, I don't know. Michigan at least has a pulse, I would say, at this point. And I'll be curious to see uh, how, how Michigan does against Washington. But I think pretty clearly we're on the same page. If you're talking the second-best big team, at, right now, based off week one, it's got to be Iowa or Penn State. If you lean Penn State, then I lean Iowa. Yeah, I think if I were to, if this were a market down Monday, I think I would say Iowa's going to Indianapolis. No, I I agree with that. Anybody, and again, anybody who was like really in on Wisconsin and and like everybody in our Cleveland.com poll picked Wisconsin to win the West. But if you were like really, really in on Wisconsin, you... yeah, that that does not look like it's going to go anywhere. They will play Iowa at some point, so they'll get their chance. But that that was not a strong start, especially considering they were at home. And, uh, and, and Penn State was coming off of a season with its own issues. But I, I, that, was, that was like the one team that I thought was going to maybe justify, not redeem itself this year was Penn State. That there was no reason to think that because of this one year that they were going to fall off completely from the perch, especially considering all the things that went into. I mean, there were things that were only kind of tangential to the pandemic that affected them last year. You know, Ohio State played a season where it was like missing guys, but like Micah Parsons opting out, the um, Journey Brown Brown not being able to play, like just just so many things. And like they were taking um, like emotional blows as much as they were taking physical blows throughout that year, as a lot of teams were. I understand. I just it just seemed like an easy call for me that there was going to be a bounce back from Penn State, and I wasn't I wasn't surprised that they won that game in Wisconsin. I have to go back and listen because we picked both of those games on the. I think we. I think I picked that I thought Penn State was going to win that game, and I I know that I said I would have. You I almost Iowa a lot, yeah. I like I was going to say, hey, maybe you should just take the points with them too, or give the points. Um, so yeah, that they, they look strong. All right, that's going to wrap up the first Monday Madness of the season. Get the text, like I said before, six one four three five zero three three one five. No podcast on Tuesday. We'll be back with you Wednesday after we talk to Ohio State coach Ryan Day and probably some assistants and a bunch of players on Tuesday at the Woody, and they uh, start giving us what they're thinking about as they look ahead to Oregon and the big home opener on Saturday at Ohio Stadium. For Doug Lee Reese, I'm Nathan Baird. That was Buckeye Talk.